Chapter 15 of There's Laughter in the Air, Radio's Top Comedians and Their Best Shows. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. There's Laughter in the Air, Radio's Top Comedians and Their Best Shows by Jack Gaver and Dave Stanley. Chapter 15. Burns and Allen. Be dumb, sweet maid. As far as George Burns and Gracie Allen are concerned, it is the dumb who inherit the earth, mortgage-free. They have made a simulated blank space between the petite ears of Miss Allen, pay off with regularity and increasing potency for twenty-two years, and if Gracie doesn't crack under the strain of pretending to be a garrulous nitwit when she is actually a very astute person, they should go on until the day after forever any old watch time. The pair, of course, has just about the most surefire routine it is possible to conceive, the dumb woman and the exasperated smarter male. Even that rare man who is thoroughly convinced that females are the equal of his sex when it comes to gray matter still has in his make-up a taint of the old male supremacy theory, and it will crop up now and then in the most unexpected manner. And since most men make no bones about the fact that they think themselves superior, it is obvious that the Burns-Allen formula has the male population right in the corner. The women go for it for two reasons. First, even the most backward of them can feel superior to Gracie, and second, Gracie, in spite of her lack of savvy, usually manages to come out on top. Burns and Allen got their schooling in that grand old academy, Vaudeville. The distaff member practically grew up in the proverbial dressing-room trunk. Her father was Edward Allen, a song-and-dance man, and Gracie was already working on the stage at the age of three and a half. She took time out for some schooling but was back in the game by the time she was fourteen, hoofing in vaudeville with her three older sisters. Next, Gracie, whose complete handle is Grace Ethel Cecile Rosalie Allen, got a job with the touring Larry Riley Company, doing jigs and other dances, and playing Irish Colleen parts. This lasted long enough for Gracie to get so accustomed to speaking with a brogue that she had the devil's own time shaking it off later. She finally left Riley over a question of billing, and since this happened in Hoboken, New Jersey, it was no problem at all to cross the river to New York. She decided to become a secretary, and began taking a course in a secretarial school. One day she went to Union Hill, New Jersey, to see a friend who was appearing in a vaudeville bill there, and it was then that she met Burns. Burns is his stage name. He was born Nathan Birnbaum in Manhattan. He entered show business with the Pee Wee Quartet when he was a little kid. Gus Edwards took over the act after a time, but George had to drop out because nature altered his tenor voice. So he gained proficiency as a roller skater and got a job with another act. The first night out, he slipped and spilled, and the audience roared. He liked that laughter, and kept the pratfall in. 
During his growing up years he worked in many vaudeville acts, learning every aspect of this exacting branch of show business, and gaining invaluable knowledge for the big years still in the distant future. When Gracie met Burns backstage, he had a partner in a comedy patter song and dance act, one Billy Lorraine. The team was on the verge of dissolving, and learning of Gracie's background, George asked her if she'd like to be his new partner. Stenography hadn't gained much of a hold on her, so she accepted readily. That was in 1922. George was the guy who had all the funny lines. Gracie was the feeder or straight man. But for some reason, the pert pretty girl began to get the laughs, whether she had the funny lines or not. The way she talked, the way she looked at George in their verbal exchanges, well, whatever it was, the audiences thought she was funny. George was neither a prima donna nor stupid. They laugh at you and not at me. Okay, I'm the straight man. It was as simple as that. And if anyone ever tells you he has never heard of a really smart actor, tell him about George Burns. They worked together almost three years, and George became a suitor as well as a partner. Gracie couldn't make up her mind. Finally, on Christmas Day in 1925, he told her that she had just ten days to give a final answer. She waited nine days and said, Okay. A justice of the peace married them and they opened a new act called Lamb Chops at the Jefferson Theater in New York, supposedly for a one-day stand. The new act was a riot, and they stayed three. A Keith Circuit scout saw them, and they signed a six-year contract on the big time. They weren't the biggest draw in vaudeville, but they became as strong a second act as a bill could have and, of course, made the Palace Theatre in New York, the outstanding home of the two-a-day and the objective of all vaudevillians. They played there many times, and were on that great bill with Eddie Cantor and George Jessel that ran for nine weeks in 1931. It was impossible to put together a show that could equal or top that one, and so the Palace passed out as the queen of the two-a-day, taking most of what was left of declining vaudeville along with it. By this time, Gracie and George were making slightly under a thousand dollars weekly, and had been for some time. They played in Europe, and in 1930, when they were in London, the British Broadcasting Corporation put them on the air, and they stayed on it for twenty-six weeks. It was their first brush with the mic. But back in this country they did nothing about radio until during that palace engagement in 1931, when Cantor, who had his own air program, suggested that Gracie appear with him as a guest artist. She did, and stole the affair right out from under Eddie's bulging eyes, much to his satisfaction. Burns and Allen were sought out immediately by the program makers. They appeared on the Rudy Valley and Guy Lombardo programs, and then they got a show of their own. Since February 15, 1932, they have been off the air only for vacations and brief lapses involving changes of sponsors. Almost a year before they became radio performers, they had signed a contract with Paramount Pictures. Their first was the big broadcast of 1932. 
Radio success naturally did them no harm at the film box offices, and they were in steady Hollywood demand from then on. They moved to Hollywood in 1934, building at last the home Gracie had always wanted to settle down in. It is a twelve-room affair in Beverly Hills, and nothing at all pretentious, according to Burns. They do have a swimming pool, however, and they consider it an excellent investment, because it has made expert swimmers of the two children they adopted, Sandra Jean, born in July 1934, and Ronald John, born a year later. They lead the simple life, except when they can break away for a week or so in New York each year. There they are lost in a mad whirl of shopping, theater, and nightclubs. Despite the fact that they have been partners for so long, Burns and Allen never appeared in performance as husband and wife, either in vaudeville or on the radio, until 1942, when they took on a new sponsor, Swan Soap. Now they are a married couple in all their air shows, suffering the trials and tribulations to which all such are heir. It is a much better setup this way, Burns says. There are more opportunities, because when you're playing with a partner who is just a girl, there are certain limitations. This change has helped us immensely as radio performers. Burns, although he doesn't get the headlines that Gracie does, is the kingpin of the combination. He is the idea man, and is accounted one of the shrewdest showmen in or out of radio. Of course, the program has its writing staff, and George works only in an advisory capacity, but nothing goes in the show without his okay. He likes to prepare the air programs at the last minute, doesn't believe in getting several weeks ahead as do some performers. Some people get jittery if they aren't way ahead, but that doesn't bother us, he explains. We think that we function better under the gun. Besides, we use a lot of topical stuff, and we can't afford to be far behind the news. Their CBS network show is broadcast on Tuesday nights. The writers begin preliminary work on the next program the following day, but it is not until the weekend that they really begin to beat the script into shape. The cast doesn't see the script until the day before the broadcast, and there is no pre-broadcast performance before an audience. That's another thing I don't believe in, previews, Burns says. After you hold one of them, you begin to go over the script to check the audience response, and you decide that you've got to have a few more sock laughs here and there. The only way you can get them in is to cut, and of course the only things that can be cut are the little natural phrases of dialogue or words that link the exchanges together as normal conversation is linked. To us, it is more important that our dialogue hangs together naturally than that we add maybe two or three more laughs. So, no previews. In my opinion, they're just a temptation to tamper with something that more often than not has hit the target in its original form. Burns has his own very definite ideas about comedy. No pressure. That's my philosophy of comedy, he explains. It goes for life in general, too, I guess. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Gracie will say that her sister Bessie used to go around with a movie star, but she discovered that she was a little too old for him. Someone asks her who the star was, and she says, William S. Hart. 
Now, with that, you've stuck your neck out. The laugh, if any, has to come with the utterance of Hart's name. You've pointed it up, and if it doesn't score, you're a dead duck. Now you take the same joke, but this time you keep the pressure off the wind-up. Gracie says something about it being true that her sister stopped going with a movie star because she found she was a little too old for him, but that she and William S. Hart are still the best of friends. In that way, you haven't built yourself up to a climax on which you have to stand or fall. You just sort of seem to throw it away. If you get your laugh, fine. If not, you haven't made yourself look foolish. Gracie, of course, is a fabulous figure. George and the writers are always dreaming up things for her to do that inevitably develop into a series of events lasting through weeks of broadcasts and keep the fans following proceedings avidly. There was the time in 1933 when Gracie made the rounds of various programs inquiring for a supposedly lost brother, a fellow about whom she told fantastic fables. The thing reached the point where her real brother George, a San Francisco accountant, virtually had to go into hiding until the gag was played out. She has had quite a political career on the radio. Once she was running for governor of the state of Coma, and she graduated from this in 1940 as the presidential candidate of the Surprise Party. How to Become President by Gracie Allen was published in 1940. She had a devastating answer for those inquiring as to what party she belonged to. Same old party, George Burns, she would say. Gracie covered the Democratic and Republican conventions in Chicago in 1944 for a newspaper syndicate, doing a short daily piece that gave a slightly cockeyed but nevertheless pointed view of the proceedings. This led to her doing a five-day-a-week syndicate piece of comments on anything and everything that struck her fancy. There is also Gracie the Musician, a stage in her career that developed somewhat by accident. One of the programs had her taking piano lessons and getting six notes right and one wrong consistently. This went on as a running gag for about six weeks, and Burns saw that there would have to be a payoff on it pretty soon. So Felix Mills, an arranger for Walt Disney, was called in, and he evolved the now famous One Finger Concerto, in which an orchestra plays a compilation of well-known melodies, while Gracie sits at the piano and contributes an occasional note with her index finger. The concerto was first done on the Burns and Allen program, with Paul Whiteman directing the orchestra. Since then, it has been played with Gracie as guest artist in the Hollywood Bowl by the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra, in Carnegie Hall, New York, in Boston, and in Philadelphia. The comedian also paints, when she has the time and the urge to record her own special brand of surrealism. She once gave an exhibition of her work in New York. Two typical titles probably won't convey the slightest idea what her work is like. Gravity Gets a Body Scissors on Virtue as Night Falls Upside Down and Eyes Adrift as Sardines Wrench at Your Heartstrings. All of these things, of course, are extremely good business for Burns and Allen. Off stage, Gracie is a pretty, unassuming person of quiet ways, 
who is a good conversationalist, and never happier than when she is puttering around the house. Burns says that Gracie reads books, bakes cakes, and ties up the telephone, just like other women. She is five feet one inch tall, and weighs a little over a hundred pounds. Burns is of average height, has retained his figure, and looks, well, he looks just like an average guy. Nothing remarkable about his face, one way or the other. He likes to play golf, and invariably attends story conferences with a club in hand. During the conference he paces, swinging the club back and forth, and occasionally halting to take a swipe at an imaginary ball. He is a lousy bridge player, so he says. Gracie prefers gin rummy. She calls him Natty and Georgie, and he calls her Googie. There's a story that goes with that. One night, years ago, Gracie woke up about 2 a.m. and couldn't go back to sleep. She shook George into what had to do for wakefulness, and said, Georgie, say something funny. Googie, googie, mumbled George, already on the way back to dreamland. She laughed. Of course, Burns remarks dryly when he relates this story. We were married at the time. Well, I hope, says Gracie. End of chapter 15, Burns and Allen.